G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks. Welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Last week, we started talking about the way that flood stories often compare overwhelming floods to battles. And in the same way, battle stories often compare their devastation to floods. But we've got something different today, haven't we, Tim? Yeah, that's right, Chris. But before we do that different thing, I want to start today's episode off with a brief quote from the Rabad Bereshit, which is a rabbinic expansion on the book of Genesis from the medieval period. Now, that name just means the big Genesis because it's an expansion in commentary form on the book of Genesis. It's basically just rabbis arguing back and forth about what the scripture means, and they've got a really interesting take on the flood, which recalls Genesis 1, but they're talking here about Genesis 6 and verse 7. So here's the quote from Rabbah Bereshit. And the Lord said, I will blot out man. Rabbi Berechiah said in the name of Rabbi Abba ben Yamah, it is written, let the waters be gathered together. The Hebrew there is Yikavu, into one place. He's quoting Genesis 1 verse 9. That means, let there be a measure set for the water, as you read, and a line shall be stretched forth over Jerusalem. And the word for line there is keveh. You can hear the similarity with Yikavu. Um, and he's quoting there from Zechariah 1 verse 16. All right, so uh, I'm just going to interrupt the, the reading here. We've, we've got more to, to read, but uh, just to explain what's going on there, Rabbi Berechiah has noticed a parallel with what's happening in Genesis 1 and what's happening in Zechariah chapter 1. And in this, he sees something of a connection between that idea and what's going on in the flood story in Genesis 6, because that's what they're actually commenting on. So the gathering together, that is the Yikavu, of the waters in Genesis 1 verse 9 expresses the idea of tension while the collective waters are pulled or twisted together. It's about the expectation of something that's going to happen. Think of a rubber band being pulled tight and that's a bit easier to understand when we look at the word in question here from Zechariah. Again from the same root where the stretching, the keveh, stretching the measuring line describes string held in tension and there's this expectation that something's going to happen so he's basically saying that the waters were brought together in one place back in genesis 1 because of what was going to happen later in the flood so this is really interesting because zechariah uses a lot of military language including the repeated reference to yahweh sabaot the lord of armies you also have these four divine horsemen who represent god's military patrolling the land after the desolation of Jerusalem, we have this time of peace followed by restoration or a new creation in Jerusalem. It's fascinating to see how the minds of the rabbis work and how they make these connections, especially when you see how they connect creation with the land of Israel. You really should read Zechariah to see what they're doing with it. I'll continue the quote now from Rabbi Bereshit. Rabbi Abba ben Kahana explained it in Rabbi Levi's name thus. Let the waters be gathered together for my purpose, so as to perform what I will one day do with them. So here the rabbi is building on that idea of expectation and a purpose that's going to be fulfilled when this situation of tension is resolved. He continues, 
It is as if a king built a palace and tenanted it with mute people who used to rise early and pay their respects to the king with gestures, with their fingers and with their handkerchiefs. Said the king, if these who are mute rise early and pay their respects with gestures, how much more zealous would they be if they possessed all their faculties? Thereupon the king tenanted it with men gifted with speech, who arose and seized the palace, asserting this palace is ours. Then let the palace return to its original state, the king ordered. So basically in this story, the king says, hey, go get those guys who couldn't talk and bring them back to the palace. They might have been mute, but at least they weren't trying to take me out. Yeah, it's kind of funny, actually. (laughs) Yeah, I did get a bit of a laugh out of that. Anyway, the rabbi continues. Similarly, at the beginning, the praise of the Almighty ascended from naught but the water. As it is written, from the voices of many waters, the mighty breakers of the sea. And he's quoting Psalm 93, verse 4 there. And what did they proclaim? The Lord on high is mighty. Said the Holy One, blessed be he. If these which have neither mouth nor speech do thus, how much more will I be praised when I create man? Okay, so what's really interesting here is that the floodwaters in Psalm 93 have particular names. They're called the Naharot in verse 1. So you would normally have that translated as something like streams or rivers. Uh, And if you know your Canaanite mythology, you will have recognized the name of the god Nahar or river. That's in verse 1. But the quote here comes from verse 4, which uses Mishbara, which is a reference to cosmic waters every time it gets used in only five places in the Bible. I'll give you those examples. Second Samuel 22, verse 5, For the waves of death engulfed me, the torrents of destruction terrified me. Right, so I was talking about death and destruction, it's not actually talking about water. Psalms 42, verse 7, Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your billows have swept over me. Okay, we have that language of the cosmic deep here. We're talking about chaos and that kind of thing. Then we have Psalm 88, verse 7, Your wrath weighs heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. Again, a situation when we're not really talking about water. Uh, We're talking about being under the judgment of God. Psalms 93, verse 4, Greater than the roar of a huge torrent, the mighty breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is majestic. That's the one being quoted by the, uh, the rabbi there. And then we have Jonah, chapter 2, verse 3, When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All your breakers and your billows swept over me. And you'll remember that from when we talked about Jonah recently. So we've definitely got some cosmic language here, some references to divine beings involved, and the rabbis are connecting this all back to the flood of Noah's day. And I bet most people never would have thought that kind of thing was in there where they could make those kind of connections. That's why I love reading this stuff. There's so much to learn. And as we keep reading in Rabbah Bereshit, we'll see how it comes together. So I'll continue with the quote. But the generation of Enosh arose and rebelled against him. The generation of the flood and that of the separation of tongues arose and rebelled against him. Thereupon the Holy One, blessed be he, said, let these be removed and the former come in their place. In other words, get rid of the people and bring the waters back to cover the earth. Hence it is written, and the Lord said, I will blot out man. What do they think, that I need armies? Did I not create the world with a word? I will utter a word and destroy them. Rabbi Berechiah said, Surely I created them from the earth. What dissolves earth? Water. 
then let the water come and dissolve the earth. And that's the end of the quote. Now, you might have wondered about that mention of the generation of the separation of tongues and the reference to water there, and that's because there's a rabbinic tradition that water was employed in the destruction of the Tower of Babel. Anyway, I'm not going down that rabbit hole here because we're already way too deep in a rabbit hole as it is. I did mention that in my book, though. Anyway, I wanted to introduce that to you just to show a bit more evidence that the idea of tension between the powers of the cosmos and the flood being talked about in military terms is not a novel idea. And although the rabbinic material comes from the medieval period, as I mentioned earlier, we can take this right back to the 8th and 7th centuries BC and still get these kinds of connections. You might not be hearing anybody else talk about this, but it isn't a novelty coming from me. It's a uh, really interesting discussion, and I'm sure we've got plenty more to say about that as we continue our study of the flood story. But before we do, let's talk about Noah's Ark, because we're getting into that part of the story that describes its construction. Oh, yeah, that's what we were going to talk about, wasn't it? Got a bit sidetracked there. Okay, let's talk about Noah's Ark. Finally, let's have some fun. Uh, I'll tell you what. I've got some drawing paper and some crayons. So we start by drawing a big box, right? And uh, I guess it's going to be made of hardwood with a little cabin in the middle and there's lots of animals, right? We can't forget forget those, of course. Okay, specifically big animals from the African savannah. Yep, tick, very important. And a couple of kangaroos, penguins, got to have penguins. I'm just going to draw a couple of little blobs here on one side and that's all the bacteria and weird little insects, right? Nobody really likes them, but we do need them and we can't miss those out. And done. Yeah, got to catch them all. Well, uh, before you get too carried away there, mate, I thought we'd better read the text. So Genesis 6, verses 14 to 16. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. All right, so we'll stop there. I guess the first question to ask is, what is an ark? Isn't it a big wooden box like the Ark of the Covenant? From what you're reading there, it sounds like a big rectangular thing. Well, it's pretty common for people to imagine the Ark that way, but as we're going to find out today, our picture of what the Ark might look like is going to be radically different once we examine it in the original languages. Okay, uh, what you said, languages, plural? Yeah, as we've talked about before on the show several times, it's not uncommon for Hebrew scribes to borrow words from adjacent languages if it helps them get the point across. I do remember you mentioning that sometimes they use words from different languages to convey ideas that they don't really have a word for in Hebrew. Gives it a certain je ne sais quoi. Yeah, that's right. So that's going to be something to keep an eye out for as we go through the reading today. Noah gets instructed to build this thing, and exactly what it is that he's building is communicated in that very first word. We have come to know it as an ark, but the word there is tabah. The tabah, as it's called in Iraq, is a big floating basket, kind of long and rounded at each end. We get our English word tub from the same root, like your bathtub. And that won't be a surprise to anyone who knows the story of Moses. He also spent some time in a basket, and the scale was different. But the construction was the same. What do you mean the construction was the same? Isn't the ark made out of timber? The basket that Moses was in didn't get made out of cypress wood, right? No, you're right, but then Noah's ark didn't either. But it says right there in the text, it's very specific, it actually says cypress wood. 
Ah, you got me. Well, yeah, it does say that in English. But we're not reading English. Actually, now that you mention it, I seem to recall the other versions of the Bible do call us something different. In the King James Version says, go for wood, I believe. Yeah, that's kind of weird, isn't it? It is. And what is go for wood anyway? Funny you should ask. People have been trying to figure that out for centuries. The rabbis actually taught that Noah spent 120 years growing cedar trees for the construction of the ark, but then you look at the translations and it seems nobody has arrived at any kind of agreement. So what hope do we have then? Well, remember what we were just saying about languages and how the Hebrew scribes have a tendency to borrow words and make them fit. Yeah. When the King James Version used the term go for wood, they were basically just transliterating the text because they didn't know what to make of it. So they just picked it up and dropped it in there as they found it without making any changes. But the assumption from most commentators is that it's some otherwise unknown Hebrew word. You only find it in this one place in the Bible. But that's the thing. It's not Hebrew. Most people have been trying to find a Hebrew word that would tell them what kind of tree it was, and some people even speculated that it would most likely refer to some kind of tree that is extinct, or the language has changed so much that we can't trace the name back to the original. But it turns out that we just weren't paying attention to the broader use of the root behind this word, gopher. Before I get into that, though, it's probably helpful to consider the word for tree. In Hebrew, there's no distinction between a living tree and any part of the tree or anything made out of the parts of the tree. Like, we talk about trees, but then if you cut a tree down, you have a log or a branch or whatever, and then if you put that through the mill, you get timber. You've got wood. We have all these different words. In Hebrew, you don't get that. There's just one word. So, it's is that word, and it applies to everything from living trees to the wood your kitchen table is made of, Even the cross of Jesus Christ would have been referred to using the same word that they used for tree. As it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. So in the text, we have eights gopher eights, which because of that repetition gives the sense that we must be talking about some particularly impressive kind of tree. And early interpretations of the word gopher preserve the idea that this derives from the wood having some kind of resin or sap in it. I'll tell you why they thought that in a minute, but if you're a European translating something into the King's English faced with the task of trying to figure out what kind of tree it is, chances are you're going to imagine something you're familiar with. That's how we got cypress wood in the text. The cypress tree or pencil pine, as you might know, it is quite widespread through the Middle East and Mediterranean regions. And if you're familiar with that particular tree, you'll know all about that sticky sap that you can quite easily get all over your hands if you touch one. It's a bit stinky, not very nice. So the gloss in the text that substitutes gopher with cypress is based on the idea of resin in the fibers of the material. Actually, the idea of resin in this text is related to the coating on the material rather than the material itself. But that word gopher is related to something else. It's actually connected to something we were talking about earlier when I mentioned the generations of Noah. So a few weeks ago, I mentioned that. And I talked about the way that that word translated as generations comes from the Hebrew ger, literally to go around. The idea with gopher is to be curved or to bend, to move in a circular fashion. And as it turns out, the cognate terms would be kupu in Akkadian or kafar in Arabic, both of which are words for the round boats made of reeds known to the English-speaking world as coracles. Although most coracles outside of southern Mesopotamia had animal skin instead of woven reeds. So this isn't solid wood. 
And when we remember that the word for tree is the same word used for any plant or plant material, it suddenly seems kind of foolish to be thinking about timber construction because if the word for tree can refer to any plant or part thereof, you can understand how it also gets used to talk about reeds growing in the marshlands. And it's those reeds that are actually used historically for the construction of the basket or boat known as tabah in Hebrew. They actually do use timber to construct a frame for the vessel, but typically the actual body of a Mesopotamian watercraft is made from reeds, not wood. And that word appears to have been borrowed from the Mesopotamian flood stories because tabah doesn't have any roots in Hebrew. So when God says, build a tabah out of gopher wood, he's basically saying to build a boat out of curved boat wood. Hmm, all these terms are getting a bit confusing though. Are they all the same? Well, the terminology evolves over time. In Sumerian, the boat is called gishma, or wood boat. Later in Akkadian, the equivalent would be elepu. These are very early general terms for boats. The shape doesn't matter. You also have in Sumerian, margur, which relates directly to that term in Hebrew that I mentioned earlier, literally to go around. So this is the boat that goes around. From this, we get the Akkadian, makuru. The earliest makuru vessels were actually long, pointed at either end, curved out in the middle, kind of like the shape of an almond. And that's how it's described in some of the earliest flood stories. In the Sumerian one, it's just a boat. There's no description. But later, the boat needs to have a particular size and shape. And the makuru gets exaggerated to the point where it's gotten so wide that it's now completely circular. Picture a round boat like a coracle, which, if left uncontrolled, will spin its way downstream. So these boats are circular. Other round boats include the Iraqi kupa also known as the kafar in Arabic. That's where we get the word gopher in the Hebrew Bible. Then you have another Akkadian word found in Babylon, which is tabu. The biblical equivalent to this is tabar. And that's the word we find translated as ark in Genesis and as basket in Exodus. Now, the difference between a tabu and a kafar is basically the shape. The kafar has to be round, but there's no requirement for other boats to conform to a particular shape. That means that the Hebrew tabah isn't circular. And that's clear enough from the instructions given to Noah anyway, but it is definitely a point of difference when compared against the vessels described in Atrahasis and Gilgamesh. So gopher wood isn't really a thing then? It's totally not a thing. It's another species of tree or a type of wooden material. It's a technical term used in boat building. Okay, but what about that sticky resin that you were talking about that's associated with that term gopher, right? How does that fit in if we're talking about reeds and bulrushes and that kind of thing? Now, getting back to the boat building, that's what they used to stick it all together. You need something sticky that'll dry hard, and you could probably try that with the sap from pencil pines like we were talking about with cypress wood, but I think you'll get a lot more mileage out of pitch or bitumen. And there are no shortage of tar pits in the Middle East where you can get that from. Once it sets dry, it's harder than nails. The Akkadians called that stuff kupu. Again, that has a linguistic connection back to the kupa, which is that round boat. So these are basically words that just mean boat stuff. Yeah, exactly. God's like, hey, now go build a boat. What am I going to make it out of? Oh, I don't know. Boat stuff? Oh, okay. See this part in the text here about making rooms inside the ark? That's an interpretive choice. If you take a very straightforward reading of the Hebrew there, the instruction is to make the ark using nests. And I mentioned way back in season four, when we spoke about the line of Cain, that there's a relationship between that name, Cain, and what we find here in the text. The word Cainim means nest and derives from the idea of making something in which you preserve something precious. So obviously birds make nests to protect their eggs. 
Nests are made from a thatch work of thin, flexible plant material, and it was the most common housing material used by people to construct shelters for their own families, especially in Mesopotamia. But as far as these boats were concerned, they were not constructed from thatch, but from coils of rope made out of the reeds. So kane is the word for reeds. You can see the connection. Here's an example of how that gets used. In Psalm 68, verse 30, Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute, scatter the peoples who delight in war. Reeds were also the construction material of choice for the temples that were constructed at the top of ziggurats. Remember when we were reading Atrahasis that Enki speaks to the flood hero indirectly by talking to the reed wall, and he tells Atrahasis, who's listening on the other side, to tear down the house and build a boat. And I did mention the possibility that the instruction given to Atrahasis could have implied that the temple itself was to be torn down as part of the building materials required for the boat. Okay, so what does that mean for the construction of the ark in the Bible? Well, it means that we should consider the possibility that the instruction was meant to convey the idea of doing exactly that, tearing down houses and possibly even a temple if there was one around in order to build this boat. So there weren't really any rooms inside the boat? Well, I wouldn't say that necessarily. I think in terms of practicalities, you'd have to divide the space into separate areas. We're told that there would be three distinct levels. At a minimum, that's going to require some structural support. And when you look at the comparative literature, you find that the other flood stories have the boat divided into rooms as well. So we could be looking at a bit of a play on words there where make nests could also be interpreted as make it out of nests. But the real punch to this comes later when we realize what the ark actually is. It's a floating sanctuary that has all the elements of sacred space. Noah doesn't destroy a temple to get saved. He makes one. That is awesome. Yeah, the other thing that I like here is the idea of destroying a house to build a boat really demonstrates your commitment to the task. You don't have the option of coming back to your house later if it doesn't work out. It reminds me of when Jesus talks about leaving everything behind to follow him, including your home. Now, have a look at this language used to describe the application of the waterproofing. We get in English words like coat or cover, and the implication is meant to be a kind of protection. The Hebrew there is bakavarta, literally to cover or to make atonement. And we see that again in the word for pitch or bitumen, which is bakafer. You can hear that similarity to gopher, the reed material traditionally secured by this sticky resin-like tar. And you also note the similarity to that Akkadian word I mentioned earlier for bitumen, which was kupru. Again, it's basically just boat stuff. We have to remember the language is functional. Nobody cares what the material is. They're only interested in the function. What do you build boats out of? Boat stuff. Simple. So it's a protective coating, obviously designed for waterproofing, but it's no coincidence that the terminology overlaps with stuff we find in the context of ritual atonement for sin and protection from overwhelming divine power. I'm going to try not to get all theological here. The translation inside and out could be rendered more literally as the house and the wall, the house implying the contents of the house, and the wall meaning the outside barrier. So it's interesting because it means that Noah's instructed to make atonement for the thing he's constructing and everything in it. That's not limited to the inner lining of the vessel, nor does it mean only human beings. Also, the mention of the house implies that it may not have been observed for a little hut to be built on top of the ark where the people would live. So Noah is protecting the people and the animals by making atonement for them. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think that's what's going on here. But you can see how this is in the subtext. On a surface level, he's just preparing a boat, making it seaworthy. That's why I say this whole story of the flood is actually two stories, one hidden deep within the other. And in the other story, 
Noah constructs and consecrates a sanctuary. So that also gives us the idea of a place of refuge in this flood, which you've been describing as a big cosmic battle. Yeah, that's right. And that's going to be really important as we continue. I should just mention that these reed boats have been in use for thousands of years. And last week I was talking about various Assyrian kings and the way that they used the language of flood to describe their military conquests. We actually have inscriptions where they describe battles in which they actually fought enemies in boats like these. So these were actually used in battle. We've got inscriptions from King Shalmaneser III and from King Sennacherib. So it wouldn't be unusual then to have a story about a great battle involving a boat like this? Well, it is a pretty unusual story, but the details are not inconsistent. Let's have a look at the dimensions of the ark now. Verse 15, this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. And is there any significance to those numbers? Well, I don't know about any symbolic importance, but it's interesting to note that it's not far off the size of the boats in the Mesopotamian flood stories. We're talking about a volume of 15,000 cubits in the biblical ark versus 14,400 in the older stories. That's pretty close. But I have heard it said that each of the three decks of the ark were as high as the temple in Jerusalem, and the surface area was three times the size of the court of the tabernacle. So that might be the reason for the difference. Well, let's go back for a moment to the interpretation of the shape. The earliest versions of the flood story give us a boat that is roughly shaped like a canoe. It's long and thin pointed at either end and wider across the middle. That slightly convex shape gets exaggerated in the Akkadian version in which the ark is circular, like the coracles we were talking about earlier. By the time we get to Gilgamesh, we find that the ark has the same dimensions, but it's commonly understood to be square in shape. You could probably put that down to a simple misunderstanding where equal length and width were thought to reflect a square shape. But when you think about it, a circle also has equal length and width. That is a very good point. And then you get the biblical ark, which appears to be rectangular until you consider the round shape implied by that gopher wood terminology. Just because we get length, width, and height specified, it doesn't mean they have to be along straight lines. And that's a lesson we learned from the interpretation of Gilgamesh. So if it's not a big rectangular box or a coffin shape, do you think it's more rounded, like that big wooden ark that Ken Ham built in America? Well, it's probably not quite that cartoonish looking, but it would definitely have rounded edges. Remember, this whole thing is like a giant basket, so it might be a bit elongated in the middle, but it's not going to have the kind of refinement that you get from more modern wooden ships. And again, until relatively recently, boats of this kind were still being made in the Middle East, especially in northern Mesopotamia, which is the area in question in the flood stories. Remember, we talked about ancient Assyria earlier. Back in the 19th century, these boats were seen being constructed on the banks of the rivers. Since then, more modern techniques have taken over, but the important point here is that this kind of vessel was by no means unique, except, of course, with regard to the size of the thing. Yeah, I've been wondering about that. It's all very well to talk about a little basket for the baby Moses, but how do we know that a basket like that would actually work at the kind of scale that we are talking about for Noah's Ark? Yeah, that's a good question. As it turns out, people have tried to make their own replicas. Uh, Not you, Ken Ham. Uh, actually, there was a team who tried to make one based on the information contained in the Epic of Atrahasis. I've mentioned before about the recently discovered tablets known as the Ark Tablet, which provided more detail than we've ever seen regarding the boat in that ancient Akkadian flood story. You can read about that in the book by Irving Finkel, which is called The Ark Before Noah. They made a scale model. It wasn't quite full size. According to their calculations, that wasn't going to work. But the one that they did build actually did float. 
Cool. So it wasn't just a replica built for show? No, they actually built it, put animals in it, pushed it into the water, floated around in it. It leaked a bit, but it worked. And I reckon that proves that if you had enough time and resources to practice a bit, you could probably get it right. I think Noah's Ark may have actually worked as a very real seaworthy vessel, and even if you argue that it might have been exaggerated in its dimensions. I don't think that really hurts the story. If you said to me the Ark couldn't possibly work unless it was 20% smaller, that's not going to make me lose faith in God. Yeah, that's fair enough. The fact that we can point to shipbuilding in the Middle East and find examples of similar craft should be enough to get us to take this seriously. Yeah, now here's where it gets really interesting. In some translations of the biblical text, you have the instruction to build a roof. And in others, it says to make a window. But the Hebrew text doesn't say either of those things. Okay, so what's going on there then? The word there in Hebrew is tzahar, and it means something like brightness or shining. Literally, make a brightness. It's connected with the idea of the noonday sun or the shining yellow color of olive oil elsewhere in Scripture. Now, opinions are many and varied about what this means. Some have suggested a window in the side of the vessel up high, just below the roof line. Some say it's a roof with an opening in the top to let light in, kind of like a skylight. Probably the most interesting interpretive option comes from the medieval period and Jewish rabbis who believed that the Tzohar was a special kind of magical stone that could emanate light. Here's another short quote from the Rabbah Bereshit. We're back there again. A light shalt thou make to the ark. It's from Genesis 6, verse 16. Rabbi Hunia and Rabbi Phinehas, Rabbi Hanan and Rabbi Hoshea could not explain the meaning of Zohar. Rabbi Abba ben Kahana and Rabbi Levi did explain it. Rabbi Abba ben Kahana said it means a skylight. Rabbi Levi said a precious stone. Rabbi Phinehas said in Rabbi Levi's name, during the whole 12 months that Noah was in the ark, he did not require the light of sun by day or the light of moon by night, but he had a polished gem which he hung up. When it was dim, he knew that it was day, and when it shone, he knew that it was night. That's interesting. I've never heard anything like that before, but that word Zohar sounds familiar. What is that? Yeah, there's a mystical tradition arising from late in the medieval period where that word Zohar, which we first encounter in Genesis 6, verse 16, comes to represent the idea of illumination through sacred mystical writings. It's part of the Kabbalistic tradition, but that's not what we're talking about here, and I wouldn't recommend getting into that sort of thing. But the idea of the Tzohar as a precious stone didn't stop with Genesis 6. This tradition was elaborated on in the Talmud, where the Tzohar stone becomes this legendary item that passes down through every generation following the biblical story. So Adam has it, and Abraham gets it, and it winds up with Solomon for a while. This stone is supposed to provide some kind of spiritual illumination and wisdom, as well as natural light in dark places. So there's a bit of a metaphor there which gets taken literally. That's not a historical artifact. If you've ever seen that Russell Crowe movie called Noah, and I've been bringing this up for years because I did an episode of the Commentarians podcast where we talked about this, you might have noticed that they had these special rocks that they could make fire with and use them to create explosions and also to give light. They used it to make the animals get sleepy while they were in the boat. That was all based on the idea of this medieval tradition of these fancy magical stones. Of course, in true American fashion, they ended up using it to make guns in the movie. Yippee-ki-yay. Uh, anyway, I think we can put all that aside because I reckon I've got this figured out. Well, I'm going to give you my theory anyway. I might be wrong. Okay, so what do you think, Tim? What is the Zohar here in Genesis 6? Let's read the passage again carefully. 
תעשה צוהר לטבח, ואל תקלנה ואל אמה מלמלה. Literally, it says to make a brightness for the ark and to finish it to one cubit from the top. At this point, I want you to remember what I said earlier about the shining, glistening nature of that word tzohar and the connection elsewhere in Scripture with oil. Here it is in Job in relation to the production of olive oil. This is Job 24, verse 11. They crush olives among the terraces. They tread the wine presses, yet suffer thirst. Now, I want you to read something else, and it'll be familiar because I've read it before in this podcast quite recently. Here's a quote. I apportioned one finger of bitumen for her outsides. I apportioned one finger of bitumen for her interior. I had already poured out one finger of bitumen onto her cabins. I caused the kilns to be loaded with 28,800 sutu of kupru bitumen, and I poured 3,600 sutu of itu bitumen within. The bitumen did not come up to the surface, literally up to me, so I added five fingers of lard. I ordered the kilns to be loaded in equal measure. All right, so that's a quote from the translation of the Ark Tablet, which I mentioned earlier and which I've previously read while we were reading ancient flood stories. And you might have noticed that the bitumen applied to the sides of the vessel did not go all the way to the top of the sides. So what does Atrahasis do in order to finish the sides of the Ark all the way to the top? He applies a coat of lard. And I think that if you didn't have lard, we might ask if lard is the best way to translate the term. You might try applying oil. The top parts of the sides of the boat isn't designed to prevent water ingress, but it does need to be able to get wet without getting rotten. Applying oil would certainly do the trick. That's an old seafarer's hack, and you'll know what I mean if you've ever applied oil to your outdoor furniture. I did that recently. Fresh oil certainly does shine beautifully. I work for an oil company, so I'm something of a subject matter expert there. Not really, whatever. Uh, what I'm saying here is that make a brightness and finish it to within a cubit of the top. They're not separate ideas. That's a single instruction. He's not making a window in the sides. He's not fitting a skylight. He's not playing with magic rocks. He's coating the top edges with oil. That's specialist shipbuilding technique, not the kind of thing most people think about. So it's not surprising that most interpreters haven't seen that. I actually have a little maritime background myself, so I'm no stranger to the idea of oiled ropes. Anyway, I think that works as a solution to the whole what is a Tsoha thing and fits with the description given in Atrahasis when we take the Ark tablet into account. Yeah, well, at a minimum, works better than magical glowing rocks, and it makes more sense than a sunroof in a rainstorm. But what's the deal here? Are we saying the Ark doesn't have a roof or any light inside? No, nah, we're just saying it doesn't form part of the instructions here in the Hebrew. Think about it. Now, there's probably a lot of technical detail and practical considerations we don't get in the text here. Anyway, we're nearly done. All we've got left is the construction of a door and the division of the ark into three levels. Now, we have the construction of three levels within the ark. For one thing, on a practical level, pun intended, uh, you need that to give this giant basket some shape and structure. Otherwise, this whole thing's going to collapse like a soft tortilla. Most other Mesopotamian flood traditions have a similar structure in the boat, although details vary. In Gilgamesh, you have six decks, each divided into nine compartments. What we need to consider at this point is that any difference from the earlier flood traditions has to be intentional and probably theologically driven. So what's the point of us being told about the door and the decking? Yeah, what's the point of us being told about the door and, that's right, the decking? You knew that was coming. Good question. I'm glad you asked. Let's look at the door for a second. It's a generic term for an entrance, and this isn't the first time in the book of Genesis that we've come across the word for entrance. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? 
behold, sin is crouching at the door. I do remember you mentioning that. Didn't we say that the entrance was the entrance to sacred space, like the Garden of Eden? That's exactly right. What we have here is sacred space created inside the ark. But unlike last time, where we saw that God came out of the garden with the humans to accompany them in their exile, this time God is going to stay outside while he takes care of business. Meanwhile, the interior of the ark maintains separation between different kinds of living things and will also be stocked with plant matter for food. So in every sense, the elements of the Garden of Eden are represented as a microcosm within the walls of the boat. But we're going to talk about that a bit more as we continue this discussion later on. Okay, well, this episode is getting kind of long, so I think we'll have to wrap it up here because we've got to get some Q&A in before we leave you this week. What have we got for next time? Next week... We're going to come back to the topic that we've been spending most of our time on lately, which is floods and war stories in the ancient Near East. But this time we're going to look at it from a more biblical perspective. That sounds interesting, as always. Yeah, it might be a bit of an eye-opener for some of our listeners. Anyway, let's have the Q&A. I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible, or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. I personally receive all your mail, and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you get answers to your giant questions. All right. Daniel asked in the Fallen Angels and Nephilim group on Facebook, did all the world's animals fit inside Noah's Ark? If so, the Ark was almost half the size of the Earth. Just when I thought we might get through this episode without being too controversial, you dropped this on me. I'm going to lose uh, half my listeners here. That's any of the questions. Anyway, what's so controversial about this? Well, Chris, in case you hadn't noticed, in the Western world, when it comes to the dividing line between these Christians and those Christians, it's usually the question of whether the flood was global or local. A lot of people seem to have an awful lot invested in this question. But I think that anybody who's been following this podcast since season one and is still listening can probably handle the straight talk on this one. We're going to talk more about the animals before the end of this season, but I can say a bit now. All right, let's have at it then. So the question presumes a global flood, and the biblical text does not require that for reasons that we're going to explore as we progress through the podcast over the next couple of seasons. If we are prepared to acknowledge that the story of the flood and Noah's Ark does not require a global flood, then we don't need all the animals in the world. Not only do we not need animals from other places further afield than Noah's backyard, we can actually bring that number down to something a lot more practical and require only the kind of animals that Noah might have found useful. We should also acknowledge that Noah's Ark is a very, very big boat. There's a lot of room in that. Even if the dimensions of the ark were exaggerated, and I'm not saying they were, but we will keep that open as a possibility, there's still heaps of room inside. I know there are going to be all kinds of objections to this view, but I haven't got the time or space here to address all of that. We are going to get there over the course of the next couple of seasons. Some listeners will have the curiosity and the patience to see how that works out. Some are going to take what I just said and declare me a heretic. But as I say, if you've been listening this far and you're still with me, then I think you're prepared to hear it. Hopefully our listeners are up to the challenge. I think they are, Chris, although like myself, a lot of them are probably coming out of that old understanding as they rediscover historical Christianity. Contrary to what organisations like Answers in Genesis would affirm, the question of whether the flood was local or global is not a matter of scriptural authority. It's a matter of textual analysis, worldview and interpretation. Don't fall for the false dichotomy presented between the global flood and 
unreliability of the Bible. That's not a choice you have to make. What you're being presented with there is the slippery slope fallacy that says if you can't take the flood narrative strictly literally, then you can't take anything in the Bible literally. As I said, we're going to talk more about this as the podcast progresses through the relevant material in Genesis. Let's just be really clear about this. The idea that a global flood didn't happen is not an excuse to turn around and say that everything else in the Bible didn't happen either. I really need to get this through to people because particularly with regard to this question being posed here today, it means that nobody has an excuse to say that just because there were no kangaroos on Noah's Ark, then Jesus didn't die for our sins. You don't get to turn around and say, well, I guess abortion is okay then because there were no penguins on the Ark. So I guess we don't have to take anything literally. Nothing means what it says anymore. And I think if anybody's prepared to be really honest, they actually wouldn't believe in that kind of a slippery slope fallacy anyway. Yeah, and I think you're right there. I don't think anybody really thinks that way. Yeah, it's just an excuse from lazy fundamentalists, if I'm being honest, to, uh, to avoid having to do any serious work in the interpretation of literature. And if you just want to pick up your Bible in English and read it at face value, that's fine. But this is where you end up. This is what you have to deal with. Where are the penguins? Uh, so I'm sorry, Daniel, it's not much of an answer to your question, but if you stick around long enough, you'll definitely get your answer. It's just going to take a lot of work to unpack. There are a lot of issues that come to bear on the interpretation of this text, and over the next couple of seasons, we're going to have to address those, as we have already been for the last six seasons. But you know how we're going to tackle this, don't you? We're going to study the text, and our conclusions will be driven by data from the text rather than being driven by a modern perspective or worldview or religious system that is brought to bear upon the text. That's how we do things here, and I think it's the only responsible approach to Scripture. We will use Scripture to inform our theology and not the other way around. A big part of this is going to depend on how you read Genesis 1. And you'll know by now that we did a full season on that. We picked it apart verse by verse, and we went through it carefully, and we worked out exactly what was being communicated in that chapter. And where we landed by the end of that season was in a place where we could see that the description of the six days of creation was intended not to describe the material origins of the cosmos and everything in it. Instead, it was to describe a six-day period of time in which God brought order to that created universe in order to create for himself a place in which he could dwell with us. God's plan was always to make himself known to us personally and to enable us to have the opportunity to be glorified by him as we strive to imitate him. That's why it's so important that we understand what creation actually is in biblical understanding, rather than modern Western thought, because once you have all that straight, the whole issue of how to understand the flood becomes a lot easier. Suddenly we don't find ourselves trying to find ways to disprove everything we know about the natural sciences just because we want to keep bad theology from being destroyed by science. <laughs> And I've said before that if the natural sciences are being done correctly and they demonstrate a truth that is at odds with your theological system, then it's time to evaluate your theology and see if you actually got that right in the first place. Because the same God who created the universe is the God who wrote the scriptures by the hand of his inspired messengers. So if there's any contradiction with what we observe in the natural world and what we read in the Bible, then our understanding of one or both of those things is incorrect. Daniel's right. If every species of every kind of animal that we know about in the world, and we'd have to include the ones we don't yet know about too, right? If, if they could all fit in Noah's Ark, then that boat would have to be far bigger than the one recorded in Scripture. And we don't even know yet if the boat really was that big or if it was just that those numbers were chosen for particular reasons. I do find it interesting that the size of the Ark is just bigger than the Babylonian versions, but only enough to give it that comparison to the temple and the tabernacle. 
I don't think that's coincidence. But I certainly don't think the size of the Ark was designed to fit every kind of creature in the world. All right, Tim. Well, I think we better wrap it up there because this has been an episode of Biblical Proportions, and we're going to be talking about this for a long time yet, so we'll continue this discussion in future episodes. In the meantime, if you're listening to the show and you have a question you would like to have featured on the show, make sure you get in touch with us and send your question in. The best way to do that is to get on the website, giantanswers.com, and just use the form on the front page of the website to send us your question. Yeah, I might also mention that if you want to help us to keep doing what we're doing, there are a couple of ways you can show some support. The number one way you can do that is by supporting the people who host this podcast for us. As you know, we're a member of the Raven Creek Social Club, and you can support them on Patreon, which helps them cover the cost associated with hosting this show. And you can find the link for donating to them on our website or just go to patreon.com. Just to be clear, we don't personally receive any money through that arrangement. It's just to help people who are helping us. Indeed. And the other way to help is, of course, by getting yourself a copy of the book, Answers to Giant Questions, which is available on Amazon. And again, you can just follow the links from the website, giantanswers.com, if you prefer. Anyway, that's all for now. We will catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help, but a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. This podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode, so if you haven't already subscribed do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops we'll catch you next time on the answers to giant questions podcast thank you for listening to the answers to giant questions podcast a production of the raven creek social club if you like what you heard today please take a moment to rate or review the show music supplied under copyright by great forsaken greatforsaken.com you can get the book answers to giant questions by tj stedman on amazon in paperback and kindle format Check out the other podcasts at RaisingFreeSC.com and go to GiantAnswers.com for more answers to giant questions. Read the blog and catch us on the socials. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends about the show. Send us your giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answers. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe and God bless. From what you are reading there, sounds like a big rectangular. From what, from what you are reading there, sounds like... But it's no coincidence that the terminal at the terminology and protection from overwhelming yawning. Uh, the basket that Moses was in didn't get made out of... I'm going to read that again. Actually, now that you mention it, uh, sorry, that's your line and I just read no, it. go for it. No, Insist. you got to read it. It's your word. <laughs> oh, goodness. I just tapped the screen and lost my place. Where are we? Uh, firstly, put Skype back where it's supposed to be. Then, oh... Goodness me. Right. Make that go away. Go. Right. Um, right. Where am I? Ah. Back in the 19th century, these boats, uh, let me try that again. Back in the 19th century, these boats were still being seen. Oh, geez. Sorry, I interrupted you. Tell that again. <laughs> <laughs> I was up until, I don't know, one o'clock last night. Gosh. Um, madly just you know i get on a train of thought and i, I just have to get yeah. until uh, <laughs> I can imagine. Out. yeah yeah and um 
I came across something. It's a it's an academic paper that I have referred to once before when I was writing the book, and it was very difficult to read it because the the article, as it is accessible for free online, uh, appears as basically scans of the pages of the book in which it was published. Right. And so when you've got some 20-odd pages and you're getting just like scans of the open book, like, you know, they're stuck it in a photocopy of that sort of thing, mm. um, that means that the pages are not in order anymore. Right. <laughs> like when you're looking at the scans. Yeah. Um, so it was very hard to keep trying to find my place. Uh, and I ended up out of sheer frustration. Um, and, I mean, just to tell you how, how frustrated I was and also how dedicated I am, um, I had to fight with a printer uh, that is designed for Microsoft and I have a Mac. And I debated with the printer for some considerable time over uh, ink level uh, controversies and whether the printer actually did exist or not, um, mm -hmm. according to other devices. Uh, for some time, and eventually prevailed and managed to print the entire thing, and then I folded all the sheets and stuck it together like a book. Nice. Yeah, wow, <laughs> wow. That is dedication. Uh, that was crazy. And after that, I was so tired, I just went to bed and didn't even read it. So I've got to do that. Uh, I have to work on a jingle and you know, some music. Oh, yes. Hmm. Well, you're a musician. Yeah, not that kind. Let <laughs> <laughs> it sell out, man. I'm a tourist. <laughs> I suffer for my art. Actually, other people suffer because of my art. <laughs>